It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Seems like every other conversation I have in the last few days is about masks. What can you do? What can't you do? Where can you do it? When can you do it? The whole thing is pretty damn confusing. And that's in part because of the abrupt nature of the rollout where suddenly CDC, oh, you got to wear a mask, got to wear a mask. Hey, actually, you don't really need to wear a mask. If you're vaccinated, you can go outside. It's fine. It's cool. President Biden coming out. And so the states, the cities, the private businesses all struggling to figure out what's acceptable. And for the average person, it really is kind of head spinning. So, for instance, um, let's see, Chicago has not gone along with the dropping the mask mandate. Neither has New Jersey. Neither is California for now. On the other hand, New York City today saying it's dropping the mask mandate. So it depends on where you are. Uh, Washington, D.C. today dropping the mask mandate. But if you go across Western Avenue to Montgomery County, Maryland, that has not dropped the mask mandate. You still got to wear a mask, uh, even though the state of Maryland is going along with the CDC. So who takes precedent? You live in Maryland, you can do it, but you can't do it if you live in certain counties. And then you get to the private business level. So for example, Trader Joe's, Costco, Starbucks, uh, a few other major chains are saying, you don't have to wear a mask if you come in our stores anymore. And that's great for business. And by the way, the science indicates that that's right. Uh, And this should have been done a while ago, not a year ago during the height of the pandemic, but with more and more of the country getting vaccinated. But if you go into a Trader Joe's that's in a district that isn't allowing it, then you still got to wear the mask. Uh, you know, I, I can't even figure it out. So a lot of people just throwing up their hands or just wearing masks just to be safe or just to be courteous. I understand that because, you know, you're in a store and people assume that because you're not wearing a mask, you must be fully vaccinated. But... We don't really know that because the stores aren't checking, they're enforcing it. So it's almost like this honor system. Anyway, it'll all sort itself out. But I don't understand, like, what is Chicago waiting for? Uh, What are the Maryland suburbs waiting for? What is California and New Jersey waiting for? Um, I guess maybe they want to see a higher percentage of people vaccinated uh, in their jurisdictions, although it's pretty high in, in some of these places. So it just puts the burden on average Joes and Janes to figure out what's okay, what's not okay. And, you know, I'm all for sort of going along with whatever the rules are, but the rules are getting really ambiguous. All right, a few things to tick off here before we get down into the meat, into the crux, into the core of the podcast. Uh, Reading an item on Deadline here, you know, they're having the television upfronts right now where networks come in and pitch their shows and try to get advertisers interested. So Fox, talking here about the Fox Broadcast Network, not Fox News, uh, let drop that it is working with Tom Brady on an unscripted series, which I think is the new uh, pseudonym for a reality show. So Tom Brady, who last year at the age of, you know, 102, comes in and wins the Super Bowl for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers pretty easily, as it turns out after all of his uh, Super Bowl rings with New England. Uh, We have a project, so it's not definite. It's just kind of to get people interested. But I don't think you drop Tom Brady's name unless you're pretty sure you're going to do something, you're going to connect with Tom Brady, whether you're going to catch the pass from Tom Brady. All right, uh, Andrew Cuomo. You know the book that he wrote on leadership, which a lot of people then um, viewed in a very different light. Uh, when all the information, when all the allegations 
about the cover-up of nursing home deaths in New York State came out. Even questions about while Cuomo was working on this book about his covert leadership, uh, he was not, or his administration was not, you know, releasing the full information, which is now under investigation, not to mention the, the later sexual harassment allegations. Well, it turns out, because it's financial disclosure season, um, that the New York governor... Uh, was going to be paid over $5 million for this book, Leader, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. I mean, even by the standards of celebrity politicians, I mean, it's not quite up at the presidential level, but that is a huge amount of money. So when the publisher came out, I guess this was a couple of months ago, and said, actually, you know, we're not going to promote this anymore. I guess maybe it's for the paperback edition. Uh, we're not going to try to book any interviews for him. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep the books that are out there. I don't think we're going to print anymore. That publisher taking a real bath, because when you make an investment of $5 million, you hope to earn it back. That's why you pay somebody all that money. So already, uh, the governor has gotten over $3 million, and then he's supposed to get another million or so over the next two years. Now, uh, the governor's office announcing that he is giving about a third of the money to charity, specifically United Way of New York. The remaining $1 million will be placed in a trust for his three daughters. So that money he keeps uh, for his family. Uh, that is not monopoly money, folks. Uh, you know how I said the other day that it's going to take the next four years to find out what really went on in the Trump administration for the last four years? So every day I'm going to probably spotlight something. Maybe not every day, but every week. So Washington Post has a little piece on. This actually involves uh, Republican Congressman Devin Nunes. Uh, you may recall, if you follow this kind of thing, that there were a couple of uh, Nunes parody accounts on Twitter, like Devin Nunes' cow, things like that. And he wasn't happy about it, and he went after them and filed a lawsuit, which apparently was unsuccessful. So what the Washington Post is reporting today is that after the congressman failed to force Twitter to reveal who was behind these secret parody accounts, and that's what they are, they're parody accounts, they made fun of them. Um, the Justice Department, that is the Justice Department in the Trump administration, took a legal run at it as well. According to court filings unsealed the other day, DOJ used a grand jury subpoena, this is serious stuff, folks, to demand the identity, identity of whoever was behind Nunes Alt, a Twitter account that criticized Nunes, an ally of Trump. Uh, Twitter strongly objected to this. The request came in November. Um, and it eventually kind of went away because Trump left office, Biden came in, and now it's not being pursued. All right, I want to lead today with number one, Kamala Harris. And there's a couple of pieces that have popped up about the vice president of the United States that are really intriguing. In my view, she's sort of in a no-win situation. I mean, she gets an inordinate amount of attention because of her trailblazing status. She is the first female vice president, as you know. She is the first black vice president, as you know. She also is the first vice president of Asian American descent, as you know. And if you layer onto that the fact that Joe Biden is 78 years old, so he would be 82 when running for re-election, and a lot of people think, and of course it depends on what his political standing is, or what his health situation is, but there's at least a pretty good chance that he might not run for a second term. If that happens, 
the nomination isn't handed to Kamala Harris, but certainly as the incumbent vice president, who presumably would have Biden's blessing, unofficially or otherwise, um, she would be a leading contender for the Democratic nomination. She gets all kinds of attention for that, for all of those reasons. First this, first that, and could be the next president, or at least a leading contender for her party's nomination to be the next president. And yet, you have to contrast with the fact that she really doesn't make much news. And that leads me to the second part, which is, you know, because Joe Biden served eight years as vice president, he knows about the job. He wanted to do for his pick, Kamala Harris. Remember, he announced in advance he was going to pick a woman. And then the question was, would he pick a a black woman? Um, Which is make that person a partner the way he believes that Barack Obama made him a partner, that he would always be the last person in the room. Um, But any vice president's um, clout, authority, ability to do anything really rests on the president who picked her or him. You know, in the old days, not that long ago, vice presidents, I mean, they got a certain amount of publicity and, you know, they would undertake, so they would go to funerals, they would undertake certain assignments. But really, it wasn't like it is today. It wasn't an obsession with whether um, Walter Mondale was a powerful vice president or Dan Quayle got a lot of press because a lot of people in the press thought he was the lightweight, fairly or unfairly, when he was the number two to George H.W. Bush. It really started to change, in my view, with Dick Cheney, because Dick Cheney, being you know, a former defense secretary, being a former congressman, knew Washington in a way that George W. Bush didn't. Bush gave him a lot of power, particularly in the first term, and he particularly on foreign policy, uh, where he had so much more experience and was the driving force, in my view, behind the whole Saddam WMD uh, scenario that led to the Iraq war. So then after that, it was, well, who would have the clout of a Dick Cheney? And that's when you get to the Obama administration. Uh, and, of course, any vice president, as George W. George H.W. Bush was for Ronald Reagan, who later ended up running, um, you know, there was just an awful lot of a spotlight on that person because any VP could become president at a moment's notice, not to mention through the ordinary electoral process. Anyway, the Atlantic has a big piece Uh about Harris, and it gets into some of this. It says her critics are seeing her vice presidency so far. You know what? It's early. It's the middle of May of the first term. She's a lot more time to define herself. But uh, the, describing this as a series of unconnected set pieces that, you know, there's a kind of a ritual. She'll, she'll get on a plane, uh, Air Force Two, and she'll go travel, uh, and she'll make a few mostly bland statements, according to Atlantic. And then um, she tells whoever she's meeting with she's going to bring their stories back to Washington, that she's out of sight. Um, Everyone expects Harris to run for president one day, but her job requires her to avoid even the appearance of preparing for her political future. Now, that's true, because if she seems too much to be about herself, then Biden is going to pull back. Uh, He's not going to want any leaks about their private meetings. He's not going to want her starting her campaign. And he knows this because he thought about 2016 before he ultimately ran in 2020. Um, You know, it it never works in that partnership if the junior partner has uh, a separate political agenda. So based on the conversations with two dozen White House aides, members of Congress, former current members of her inner circle... Uh, The Atlantic says they have mixed feelings about her as VP. 
They want her to seize a more public profile, um, but she's working with a guy who is determined to show that he is the boss. Uh, she didn't want any one portfolio. So, for example, she got this political hot potato. She's going to be in, uh, specializing in the border. She hadn't been to the border yet. Why do you think that is? Well, she says she wants to deal with the root causes in places like Guatemala, but I, I'll tell you why it is, at least in part, because the border is a mess. And if she takes ownership of it on behalf of the Biden administration and can't solve the problem, which is a pretty intractable problem, then she owns that mess. Uh, she also was asked to be in charge of the space program and, you know, certain other things. So what's interesting to me here as a media critic, uh, The Atlantic says the vice president and her team tend to dismiss reporters. Trying to get her to take a few questions after events is treated as an act of impish aggression. You can't, you can't be aggressive and you certainly can't be impishly aggressive. Uh, and Harris herself tracks political players and reporters whom she thinks doesn't or don't fully understand her or appreciate her life experience. And here's the zinger. At times, she comes off as so uninteresting that television producers have started to wonder whether it's worth spending thousands of dollars to send people on trips with her, whether that's worthwhile given how little usable material they get out of it. Now, when Biden was vice president, uh, sometimes he'd go off. He'd be heard on a hot mic saying that passing Obamacare was a BFD, big effing deal. He got out ahead of the president in 2012 before Obama was soon to announce his support of gay marriage by coming out for himself, whether he meant to, whether he stepped in it. Uh, so gaffes can certainly undermine a president's confidence in you. Uh, Biden and Harris emerged in how regular people will feel about their decisions than how they will play among political junkies on Twitter. Now, just so happens that piece was yesterday. I saw it late yesterday. Today, Politico has a piece on which Asian Americans are a little frustrated or impatient with Vice President Harris because she's the daughter of an Indian mother as well as a Jamaican father. She's, uh, you know, she has that Indian American heritage and she's talked about her mom a good bit, but the stories about her almost always focus on her being the first black vice president, as opposed to the first Asian American one. Harris understands the critique, says Politico. After all, she's faced it before. Ah, she's about to speak to the first AAPI, Asian American Pacific uh, Island Unity Summit, in which she will talk about, obviously, her Asian American background. But with the likelihood that she'll run for president, again, Politico nodding to that reality, she has some more balancing to do. You know, she's chatted with Al Sharpton, you know, who also has an MSNBC show about her African-American hero. She's gone uh, on news outlets geared toward black audiences from Chicago to San Francisco. She made an unannounced stop at an old Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, where four black college students famously refused to give up their seats in that protest that was actually six decades ago. She's urged African-Americans to get the COVID-19 vaccine. So, politicians and activists of Asian American descent have cheered her asset, but they want her to speak out more about her Indian heritage. Uh, at other times, she's criticized for not being black enough. So that's why I started out by saying she's in a no-win situation. She's got to play to her constituency of one, President Biden. Uh, she's got to certainly tend to her black roots because if she does run, look, how did Joe Biden get the Democratic nomination? With black votes, with Jim Clyburn turning an absolutely lackluster campaign around for him in South Carolina and then those big industrial states with a heavy black vote. If Kamala Harris runs, she's got to own that vote 
since she happens to be black herself. Uh, anyway, it makes for a lot of journalistic critiques, and it probably makes for her being cautious. One of those stories as well, she hates the word cautious. She, it's become shorthand. She really despises it. But she is being careful, and she should be careful, because it's very easy to step on your message and screw things up when you are the number two. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two. The New York Times has what I think is a fascinating story about the Biden White House staff. Starts out with Mike Donilon, one of the most trusted advisors to the president, has known him for decades. He comes and goes from his West Week office almost as a spectral president. You don't see Mike Donilon giving interviews or appearing on TV. Uh, look, under Trump, you had Sean Spicer, who was a recurring character on SNL, which he didn't particularly like. You had uh, Stephen Miller, who was, you know, once booed out of a restaurant, which I didn't particularly like when any of that was done to Sarah Huckabee Sanders or anybody else. Um, but Biden doesn't want this sort of cult of personality. I mean, under Trump, Kellyanne Conway was instantly famous. She was, not only did she go on TV a lot, but she had been a Washington figure. And so with Trump, you had these people who became television stars. Uh, Biden doesn't seem to want that, and he's not getting it. Now, Politico goes into the history. Look, under the Obama administration, you had Rahm, Valerie Jarrett, you had David Axelrod. They became really well-known. Under W, it was Karl Rove, who was famous. He was called the genius. He was called Bush's brain, which was not a compliment. Um, Tony Snow was famous in that era. He'd already been, you know, uh, on Fox News. During the Clinton years, James Carville, Paul Begala, George Stephanopoulos, they all became pretty, pretty famous. All right, aides say Biden does not like profiles of his staff in the news media, but is eager to see his cabinet secretaries on television. So you are seeing a lot of people who just saw him this morning talking about the infrastructure bill on MSNBC. Jennifer Granholm has been out a lot as the energy secretary. It's almost like a return to cabinet government, which hasn't really been a thing, I would say, since the Carter administration. Uh, Reagan made some moves in that direction, but ultimately what happens is, you know, these people all run their departments to a point, but really, the power lies with White House aides. Uh, and so uh, that's why you have a lot of people keeping a low profile. Now, Anita Dunn, who's one of those people, when she worked, when she was Obama's communications director, and I know her a long time, she did a lot of television. She does it very sparingly. She does interviews very sparingly right now because she, again, has known Biden a long time. She knows he doesn't want his White House people, and this was true during the campaign as well, to be too far out there. She says on the record, this is a very deliberate decision. This is a president who wanted to make sure he had a cabinet that was fully empowered. Now, this is insightful. Some people close to Biden attributed his aversion to intention-loving staff to previous political failures. So when he ran for president, I was going to say 88, actually 1987, which is when I wrote about him because he never got to 88 because he dropped out after the plagiarism uh, episodes. He blamed some of the famous consultants he had hired, like Pat Cadell. And he was quoted as saying, I never solved the guru problem. He didn't want his famous gurus defining him. So some uh, of the president's closest advisors now, Bruce Reed, who is much better known uh, when he worked uh, for, is it Clinton or Obama or both? I'm trying to remember. Or Jennifer O'Malley Dillon. She was the campaign manager. She kept an enormously low profile. She's, the current, she's currently the deputy White House chief of staff. And people like that are almost never heard from. And I just think that's an interesting contrast with certainly the Trump years, but previous 
administrations as well. And, you know, Trump used to always be widely reported if somebody like a John Bolton or a Jim Mattis or a Steve Bannon at the beginning started to get too much press. Bannon was on the cover of Time magazine. He would invariably knock him down a peg or two because he did not, like Harry Cohn, he did not like. He wanted to be the star of that administration. And unquestionably was the star. But, you know, people around him became famous, Kellyanne and so forth. She always managed to kind of navigate uh, those difficult shoals. All right, let me get to number three here. This audit going on, this election audit uh, in Maricopa County out in Arizona, uh, dominated by Republicans. Well, the Board of Supervisors there in this Republican-dominated Board of Supervisors has now denounced this audit being done just by the Republican Party out there as a sham, as a con, calling on the state Senate, which is led by Republicans, to stop this controversial recount championed by Trump. Trump has talked about Arizona a lot. In a public meeting and a letter to the state Senate president, the board said the audit has been inept, promoted falsehoods, and defamed the public servants who ran the fall election, according to the Washington Post. Um, the process is a spectacle that is harming all of us, said the five members of the board, including, and four of them are GOP leaders. They are saying, call off this audit. It's time to make a choice to defend the Constitution and the Republic. Uh, we stand together united to defend the Constitution and the Republic in our opposition to the big lie. So that's a very big deal uh, for Republicans to say that. Our state has become a laughingstock, they said in this letter. Worse, this audit is encouraging our citizens to distrust elections, which weakens our democratic republic. Wowza. Let's move to number four. And it's a column that really struck me by Pulitzer Prize winning Tom Friedman in the New York Times. Tom Friedman had worked in the Middle East, has spent decades understanding the Middle East conflict. Whether you agree with him or don't agree with him is a whole separate matter. But this guy has an incredible context there, knows his stuff. He's a very provocative column. I don't agree with all of it. I urge everyone to remember that Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip in 2006. You know, what? we don't want to be involved anymore. Here, you guys run it. Uh, pulled out a lot of settlements. Let the And what happened was Hamas, widely acknowledged as a terrorist group, took over the government of Gaza. And you've had this warfare ever since, which obviously has been taking place over the last nine days. A lot of world public opinion is starting to turn against Israel. And I would remind people again, as has been the case in 2014 and some of the earlier violent episodes, um, Israel was attacked. And you can criticize Israel for overacting to some of the demonstrations. But, you know, Hamas fire, has now fired about 3,000, more than 3,000 rockets at Israel, including Tel Aviv. And the Israelis, which have, you know, which has, they have far superior firepower, has fired back and tried to make Hamas pay a price. And that's always been the Israeli stand. But here's the Friedman take. He says that the leaders of Hamas and Bibi Netanyahu are each having a January 6th moment, referring to you-know-what here in Washington. Bibi and Hamas each exploited or nurtured their own mobs to prevent an unprecedented national unity government from emerging in Israel, a cabinet that for the first time would have included Israeli Jews and Israeli Arab Muslims together. Now, this got overshadowed in the violence that is taking place right now. President Biden calling for a ceasefire, but not pushing Israel all that hard. So there have been four inconclusive elections 
that somehow BB always manages to pull out some sort of coalition government. Every time it looks like he's going to be toppled. I mean, he's also facing charges. And uh, his opponent was given the right to uh, take a turn at trying to form a government. And that was just before this all blew up. So what uh, Friedman says is, like Trump, Bibi and Hamas have kept power by inspiring and writing waves of hostility to the other. They turn to this tactic anytime they're in political trouble. They've been the other's most valuable partner. Ever since Netanyahu was first elected back in 96, on the back of a wave of Hamas suicide bombings. No, Hamas and Bibi don't talk. They don't need to. They each understand what the other needs to stay in power and consciously or unconsciously behave in ways that deliver it. And so it's probably fair to say, as Friedman does, that if this violence and now this state of war, there's no thing to call it, the state of war hadn't broken out, that Netanyahu would have lost the premiership because it looked like um, the guy named Yair Lapid was going to form this coalition government. He's the secular centrist with the religious rightist Naftali Bennett. That would have created a cabinet, a coalition government, Israelis and Israeli Arabs. There are about 2 million Arabs who live in Israel. Not talking about West Bank, not talking about Gaza. They're about 20% of the population. They would, they would have been in the Israeli government for the first time. That, in Friedman's view, would have broken the mold of Israeli politics forever. And that's why the local January 6th-style opponents in Israel and Hamas were determined to blow it up. Now, that might be part of the reasoning. It might just be, you know, Israel's long-standing policy of if you hit us, we hit back 10 times harder. Remember, it is, despite some recent peace agreements, a Western-style democracy surrounded by hostile Arab countries. There is a cold peace with some of those countries, like Egypt, but places like Hamas, they are dedicated to the destruction of Israel. Israeli ambassador or former Israeli ambassador was on TV today talking about how it's hard to make peace with an enemy that is dedicated to your destruction. How do you do that? Um, and Hamas wants more power against you know, the Palestinian Authority, what used to be called the PLO, which governs the West Bank. So it's kind of a split um, struggle for control of the Palestinian movement. Um, anyway, I think that's interesting. Look, there's eventually going to have to be a ceasefire. What Israel is trying to do now is defy world opinion and do more bombing and degrade Palestinian, Palestinian uh, military capabilities in Gaza to the extent that it can before it's finally sort of dragged to the peace table. Um, and, it, you know, the former ambassador said, what would the United States do if half of its population was in bomb shelters because half the country was being bombed? And I think that's a question for people to examine. Again, I know there are passionate feelings on both sides. I know inevitably when this kind of bombing takes place, there are civilian casualties among the Palestinians. I know there are uh, a lot of very liberal Democrats who don't like the Biden policy of pretty unconditional support for Israel. The politics here in the U.S. has changed, as well as what's going on in the Middle East. And let me move on now to number five. So yesterday I talked about Bill Gates. Today it's Matt Gates. Of course, that's G-A-E-T-Z. So the guy who in Florida who Gates has called his wingman, an ally of the Florida congressman, Joel Greenberg, former tax collector in Seminole County, pleaded guilty yesterday, as has been uh, signaled a couple days earlier, to multiple federal charges, including sex trafficking of a minor, 
identity theft, stalking, and fraud, bringing his own crime spree to an end, according to Politico, officially marking a new chapter in the investigation. So the knee-jerk reaction among the journalists, and I probably fell into this too, is, well, this is not good news for Matt Gates, because obviously Greenberg is going to cooperate with prosecutors, try to get a lighter sentence. That means he's going to turn on his former friend, his former ally, who is himself under investigation for uh, sex trafficking alleged, for uh, paying a 17-year-old girl, or at the time, alleged, no charges against Congressman Gates, who insists he's completely and totally innocent. Um, now, in the plea agreement, which runs 84 pages, Greenberg uh, does not mention Gates, and the U.S. the U.S. District Court down there doesn't mention Gates in any way. But it does state that the victim of the sex trafficking, which Greenberg's now pleaded to, had sex with other men while she was 17. Now, is that a signal that it's Gates? Could it be other men? I don't know. But what Politico does, rather than jumping on the wagon of Gates is doomed, his friend's going to turn on him, he's going to get charged, because this has been under investigation for many months now, in a sign that Greenberg's cooperation is likely not enough to make a case against Matt Gates, federal prosecutors are in talks for, for an immunity deal with his former girlfriend, I think this is not this former 17-year-old, that seeks her cooperation. She has not spoken personally to investigators. Her lawyers refuse to comment about what, if anything, she would have to say. The victim's testimony would also be crucial, and one source familiar with the investigation says she's 100% talking to prosecutors, but the nature of her testimony is unclear. So look, if federal prosecutors had a strong case against Matt Gates, one, they would have brought it by now. Two, they wouldn't necessarily having to be making a plea deal with Joel Greenberg, although maybe they would want to convict him anyway since he's a former public official. I'm not saying that Gates hasn't done a lot of questionable things. I am not defending him. The Gates spokesman says, look, Joel Greenberg has now confessed to falsely accusing an innocent man of having sex with a minor. That's the reference to somebody else. So in fairness, let's see how this plays out. If I was Gates's lawyer, yeah, I'd be plenty worried. If I was Matt Gates, I'd be plenty worried. But let's just say at the moment, it's not clear whether these charges will ever be brought. So, wide-ranging uh, survey of the political landscape today, the political and cultural landscape, I might add. Now, you can subscribe on your Amazon device or Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, Amazon Music. We hope you'll do that. Uh, we thank you for listening, as always. And I'm back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.